Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 6th, 2016, and this is episode 1911 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is Tuesday, so it's a Just Jack show. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about the fact that at least I believe, I think, I feel, I feel it is my duty to teach you. That you have a duty to be prepared. That, that our society as a whole has a duty to be prepared. And, and I don't mean that like you owe it to the United States government. You know that's not what I mean when I use the word duty. I mean to yourself and to those you care about, to your friends and family. I think that all of the bullshit in the media about how preppers are crazy is, is indeed bullshit. Because if for no other reason, it's a basic civic responsibility to see to your own preparedness. And we're going to talk about that today and, and, and how vulnerable and weak this nation really is. We have a soft underbelly. All I can say is, thank God, no terrorist group has actually decided to attack this country yet. But Jack, 9-11 and the, you know, no, 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 you don't understand what I mean. And by the end of today, you will. You will. You'll understand how weak we are as a people, as a society, and as a nation. And, and you'll understand why that is. And you'll understand why it's necessary to do these basic preparedness things just so we're not so damn weak. And why we need a new mindset as well. That was my goal for today's show. I think this will be a great one for you to share with new listeners. I really do. Anyway, before we get to that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1911, and it's one of my favorite numbers, and I bet you know why. It's our lead story from Alex Shrug today at TSPWiki.com. The Colt M1911 wins. I also have the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, and I have the Great Eskimo Vocabulary Hoax. Since I'm not going to read that one, I'm going to tell you something that... Uh, there's a myth here that gets exposed. The Eskimo thing where they have 40 words for snow or 100 words for snow or something like that, it's all bullshit. You might want to read it up for yourself. Before we get into all this, though, let's read Notable Births in another news. Notable Births, L. Ron Hubbard, author and founder of Scientology, who, by the way, who, by the way, went on TV about 10 years before he started Scientology when he was just a sci-fi writer and said, if I really wanted to make money, I should found a religion. That's where all the money is, and yet people still buy into it. Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan actor, union leader, governor of California, and president of the United States, is born this year. Lucille Ball, star of I Love Lucy and the producer of Mission Impossible and Star Trek. 
And don't forget Vincent Price, Danny Kale, Ginger Rogers, Spike Jones, Roy Rogers, and Phil freaking Bill Monroe are all born this year. In other news, Glenn Curtis builds the first seaplane, and Eugene, Eugene Ely lands a Curtis plane on the afterdeck of the USS Pennsylvania. The Italians perform the first aerial reconnaissance and airstrike. Grenades are dropped from Turkish, on Turkish troops in Libya. The Turks establish a no-fly zone by shooting down the first airplane. The richest black man in the USA passes away. John Trower started with Zip and leaves with almost $28 million in 2015 dollars in trust to his family. He ran a catering business and invested in real estate and opened a vocational school. He was not alone. All right. So we're going to read, as you might imagine, knowing me and my affinity for the 1911, the Colt M1911 wins. The competition has been fierce between the Colt 1911, designed by John Browning, and 10 Shots Quick Savage in 1907. The U.S. military had set its heart on the 45 caliber sidearm. Six manufacturers submitted their designs for testing, but that was soon reduced to three. The Luger was dropped after the DWM company refused to accommodate the changes the U.S. government asked for. Frankly, the DWM thought they were being jerked around, and maybe that was the true. Uh, that left the Colt and the Savage. In the end, the 1911 came through, testing with fewer faults. The Savage pistols were returned, and the Colt became the service pistol for the U.S. military until 1970s, when the military judged the 1911 to be getting a little long in the tooth. The Colt 1911 is still used by some forces today and has fostered many clones in the civilian market, some better than others. The 1911 is favored by the survivalists for its reliability, availability of parts, the use of popular 45 round, and it looks wicked cool. My take by Alex Shrug. Less than 200 of the Savage 1907s and 45 caliber were made for the trial. The 1907 was redesigned for 32 caliber and advertised as a weapon for women to hold off burglars and tramps. Regarding the popular 1911 in the present day, I have no problem wading into the religious political subjects. But when it comes to firearms, I sit at the feet of my elders and listen carefully. Some 1911 owners speak like it's a religious experience. Others throw up their hands and shout imperious words of rhyme with clock. I'm staying neutral. <laughs> my wife loves the compact 45 that Smith & Wesson puts out. Looks like a 1911, but it isn't. She shoots like Annie Oakley, though, better than I do. You know, I'm not a religious zealot when it comes to the 1911. I just think it's the finest handgun ever made. And I think that someday somebody might make a better one, but they haven't done so yet. And uh, that doesn't mean it's the best handgun for everybody. It doesn't mean that you're wrong if you choose something else. If you like the Glock, that's fine, or the M&P or whatever. But if you if you look around, there's nothing else that's been built into so many different versions and customizations and things like that. There's nothing else that has the level of following the 1911 does. Nothing. And it's not just because it's been around a long time. It's because it was built to be what it is. It wasn't built to replace something else. Browning really didn't even beat it, build it to beat the others. He built it to be the perfect gun for the 45. And it is. And the reason I love it, honestly, is when I was about eight years old, the first time I ever shot a handgun, my grandfather put a 45 1911 in my hands at eight years old and started teaching me how to shoot it. And because of that, I've shot it my whole life, and it feels like putting a glove on. That's why I love it. Anyway, you're free to love whatever you want in the world of guns. That's that's the beauty that is America, at least for now. Anyway, um, I thought it would be interesting to learn more about this Savage 1907, because I didn't really know much about it. And uh, Ian at Forgotten Weapons has actually gotten a hold of one and done a review on YouTube. So I have a link in the show notes. If you want to know more about the 1907, 
you can go look at it. It's not a terrible gun, but you can sure as hell see why the 1911 won the day. That's just my opinion. Anyway, with that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. Now, look, most people that get into the world of preparedness, modern survivalism, whatever you'd like to call it, have various scares that come into their lives that make them one day sit up and go, oh shit, everything's not perfect. Everything's not swell. Something could go wrong. Or they see something does go wrong for somebody else, and they shit, that's not happening to me. Or they live through something where they have to be miserable and living hand-to-mouth for a while because they weren't prepared and say never again. Okay? And because of that, We can't just blame the mil or the, the military. We can't just blame the media for making us look crazy, because the people that sell stuff into this market, okay, the people that sell the pallets of MREs and stuff like that, some worse than others, but but all of them to a degree, partially just because they have to, because it's what works, sell at least on some level based on fear. You better get it now before it's not here, okay. The, the, the government is doing this, the, 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 the stock market's doing that, what have you. And that drives that, that fear, which is the primary motivation for people, unfortunately the primary motivation for people, to become preppers, to become prepared. So the media picks up on this and sensationalizes it and all. We're not going to go into that today. I'll just say that if somebody shared this show with you, whatever you think you know about preparedness from watching a show like Doomsday Preppers, just, just, just get rid of it. Just throw it out of your head. It's, it's wrong. It's not true. It's not the real people that are doing this. It's not the average everyday person who lives right next door to you that's more prepared than you that you should, you should aim to be like. In society as a whole, there are a certain percentage of people that are mentally okay enough to basically function in society, but otherwise we would describe them as batshit crazy. Okay? And when media focuses on any group and wants to make money off of that group, they find the batshit crazy portion of that group and or the people looking for their 15 minutes of fame and then they make people that aren't batshit crazy look batshit crazy. So that's the whole shtick behind the crazy prepper stuff that you see in the media. There's no more to it than that. There are the vast minority of people that are into the preparedness lifestyle. Because I'm going to tell you something that Your government should be telling you, if you look to government for direction, that your teachers should have told you when you were in school, that your community leaders, whether they're elected or just representation leadership because you know of who they are, if you're part of a church, what your church leadership should be telling you, that, 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 we, that we should be teaching to our children that your parents should have taught to you. You have a fundamental responsibility for preparedness. And... It's really hard for people to, to get their heads around this for some reason because we have had so many of our rights stripped away that people want to focus on, well, I have my rights, I have my rights. And some people are so delusional that they think rights come from government. Well, rights do not come from government. Rights are either protected by or trampled on by government. Those are the only things that government can do with a right. They can either protect a right or they can shit on it. There's nothing else government can do in respect to a right. Because a right by its very nature means that when you were born, when you were popped out of your mama, that that right was inherent to you as a living human being. Otherwise, it's a privilege. Okay? If it's a right, it, then it's inalienable. 
Our founding document teaches us this, okay? So just get that to the rights thing. But let me tell you something about rights. Rights come with responsibilities. If you have a right to freedom, then you have a responsibility to ensure that you're able to use that freedom or you're able to preserve that freedom. You have a responsibility to use that freedom with some common sense. In, in, you know, this is back to you, you have a right to swing your fist right up to the other man's nose, and then you no longer have that right anymore. In the words of Oliver Wendell Holmes, you, you do not have the right to swing your fist past where the other man's nose begins. But you swing your fist all you want up to that point. And every right comes with a corresponding group of responsibilities. Let's take something simple like the Second Amendment, right? The right to keep and bear arms. I believe that you as a human being have a fundamental right to own firearms. That that is a, a, a method of self-protection and preservation. And that there is no case that can ever be made that the people that rule over you have access to that type of technology and you do not. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous on its face that, that most of the nations in the world actually see it that way. That you as a free, sovereign individual have a right to self-preservation and self-defense and a firearm as a means to that. But that doesn't come without responsibilities. Now we can talk about gun licensing and stuff. All That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about basic common sense responsibilities. If you're going to own a rifle, for instance, you have a responsibility to not load it and, and lean it against a tree in the front of your house. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, outward kids can just pick it up and walk away with it. That's irresponsible behavior. And I think any if you don't think that's irresponsible behavior, you probably are in the batshit crazy group and you shouldn't own a gun. Not because somebody should prevent you. Like, you should just realize you're that stupid and you should realize that you can't trust yourself with a gun. And I think anybody that was living in a community, even a stateless society, right, where there was no law, but where people pretty much, you know, figured things out, kind of Old West style, let's say, or somebody, and somebody was doing that, the, 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 the rest of the people would get around and say, you got to cut this shit out. we got kids playing. you got to knock this shit off, or you're not going to be welcome here anymore, because it's common sense. That's a responsibility corresponding with a right. And when you start talking about freedom, it's a very broad thing. Well, it, that means it comes with a whole broad list of responsibilities. You, you would, I think most people would agree that you should have the right to marry anybody you choose, and if it's physically possible, because you've made a choice where it's physically possible, to have children. And you should have a right, as long as those children aren't abused, to raise those children in the manner that you see fit. I think anybody that doesn't agree with those two things is batshit crazy nuts. Like, I mean, that's just basic, innate human reality. You have a right to choose your mate, and you have a right to, with that mate, produce offspring and raise those offspring. Well, then what are the responsibilities? To care for your mate, both directions, male to female, female to male, right? To care for your children, to see to their needs. And to not just see to their needs when it's easy, but to see to their needs all the time. Okay, well, something's gone wrong now, and you can't get food, and your kids are hungry because you're not prepared. That makes you irresponsible. It doesn't make you a victim. It makes you irresponsible. If you were prepared, you'd taken steps toward preparedness, you'd done everything that was reasonable, and some catastrophe hits that wipes out your ability to procure food and your food, then you're a victim. 
And then you still have a responsibility to use what's you know, the gray matter between your ears to figure out how to take care of those kids. But if you allow yourself through complacency to be put in a position where your children go hungry or they shiver when they did not have to because basic preemptive steps would have prevented it so that when a disaster struck, a shortage came, whatever, that it wouldn't have happened, you are not a responsible citizen. You are not a responsible adult. And you are damn sure not a responsible parent. And I know some of you think, well, I'm single. Okay. Well, imagine that because you don't... See, if you're single, it's easy. It's easy to have basic preparedness for one. Really easy. It costs less money. You don't have anybody to argue with about what the priorities are. You just do it. But if you don't do it, and now some sort of disaster or, or mishap happens, and emergency responders or evacuation people or uh, charity or, or whatever it is, any kind of level of response is dedicating time, manpower, resources, and materials to you, there's someone else that maybe is that victim. They did do everything right, and the catastrophe was just such that it wiped out them, and it wouldn't have wiped out you. You're just dealing with a shortage. Now, you're taking their resources. You're irresponsible in your community for not being prepared. And, and I, I, I am blown away that in 2016, we're not teaching children this in school on one hand. On the other hand, I'm not blown away by it because if you teach personal responsibility, you don't get obedient sheep. You get critical thinkers who question everything and demand the best. So it's difficult to, to teach preparedness and not get that other thing that I don't think that society really wants today. Certainly the state doesn't want today. Does that make me a crazy conspiracy theorist? I don't think so. Judge for yourself the society we have today versus the society we had 50 years ago. And the ability of people to solve their own problems and take care of themselves and take care of their neighbors. And it's gone down proportionally with our unwillingness to teach the responsibility for personal safety and personal responsibility to our children. And the primary place that happens is the school. Yes, it should be the home, but the primary place it happens is the school. Because that's been handed down over multi-generations now where parents that came out without being taught it are sending their kids to school to teach them whatever they need to know because they don't know what they need to know. And that's where we are. Before we get into some basic things you can do to be prepared, and it's not that complicated, I want to talk about how weak America is today. To natural disaster, to man-made disaster, to terrorism, how absolutely fundamentally weak we are. Um, this morning I heard that last night there was a fire started somewhere in Ohio, and Ohio's you know fire department, Cincinnati, whatever it was, I'm not sure where, Maybe it was Cleveland. Um, they they rush to the scene and they start fighting the fire. Somebody fires shots, hits one of the firefighters in the leg. Fortunately, he's rescued or you know sent to EMS and he's he's okay. Uh, he's gonna be he's gonna be fine. But he was injured and wounded trying to do his trying to save somebody's property and, and or life. And there's also shots that were found into the fire truck. So somebody opened fire on firemen fighting a fire. That's detestable. And if the person's caught, I honestly wouldn't care if they took one of those big ladder trucks and put a quick release on him and, and strapped it to a harness on, on his shoulders and lifted him as high as one of those things will go and pulled it and let his ass fall to the ground. Because you are a sick piece of shit if you're shooting a fireman doing his job. You really are. 
I, I have I have no quarter for a person like that. And it's horrible, and it sucks, and it could be gang-related. It could be some jag-off that just wanted to hurt people. It could be some sort of domestic terrorism. We don't know yet. But what caught my attention, and it's something that probably wouldn't catch the attention of most people, most people wouldn't think anything wrong with it, they'd say, well, that makes sense, is that in the news report this morning they said, And from now on, local police departments will escort firefighters to all calls. What? One guy shoots at not not most calls, not you know large fire calls, not for the time being. From now on, for all. So one person shooting one fire truck and a firefighter in the leg. Again, it was a reprehensible piece of excrement, okay? But one person did that, and now the entire city's police department is going to alter their protocol to respond to one threat that you don't know if there's any... What that means is that we are so reactionary. We are so reactionary. So what would happen if 10 of these instances happened in one night in ten different cities. And how many people would then need the assistance of a law enforcement officer who couldn't get one because they're babysitting a fire truck? Going into an apartment to spray a fire extinguisher on a grease fire in a kitchen. Or, or whatever they're doing. You, you just have to think of the mentality. When the When the shooting happened of the police officers here during the Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas, every police department doubled up their officers. No, so, and I saw, I've never seen two sheriff's deputies in a vehicle together ever out here where I live, where Tarrant County sheriffs are. The next day, I saw a Tarrant County sheriff pull someone over speeding on the road and Trust me, if they pull your ass over speeding on my road, you had it coming. Because I see guys, it's a 50-mile-an-hour speed limit, and I see guys go through at 65, and they don't blink. They get the guys doing 80 where kids and dogs are and stuff like that. So they pull the guy, but I noticed there were two people in the vehicle. Now, they've since pulled back on that, but they immediately went there. Now, I'm not saying that was wrong. I'm just saying that was the response, and it was all the departments around here. Well, that cut in half the ability to have officers respond Because of one incident. And, and, and again, I'm not even questioning whether or not those are the right decisions. What I'm saying is, so what does a, a, a entire shitload of those things do? How much then are we then required to do the jobs that we think government's supposed to do for us? There's a big difference when you make a phone call and your life's on the line to a law enforcement officer and they get there in a minute versus ten. Or five minutes versus 15. Now, I think you, sh you can die in one, so you should be ready to defend yourself. But it does matter. And police officers always not always called because there's a break-in or a robbery. There's a lot of things police officers respond to to help people. And it's just one more thing you have to look at. What if two guys, just two people, so that it was happening in different places at the same time, so that it made it harder to pin down... Just got a, you know, a couple late model cars, 
a whole bunch of milk jugs and a Texaco card and some rags and just started committing arson in random locations all over the country. Just two people. Look at what's going on in Tennessee right now. There's, there's fire departments sending firefighters in from five and six states away who are now not where they usually are to do their job because they're doing good work to help fellow Americans, which they should do. But what if we had 20 or 30 fires like that going on in different places? Do you think people that are willing to take a video while they slice a person's head off and publish it are unwilling to light some trees and buildings on fire? On some levels, it makes me, makes me question how credible the threat against America is that these things aren't going on. Because we have a textbook case of this. Northern Ireland during what was called the Troubles. Burn shit, break shit, just whatever you could do to be disruptive. And our underbelly in that world, because of our freedom is so soft. And think about the consequences to our freedom if we can't personally be responsible for to be defending ourselves and be providing for ourselves and be strong as individuals. Because then what happens is we cry out to the rulers to protect us. And they say, well, it's, it's because all these soft targets, because everything's there's so much freedom. The next thing you know, you're getting pat down and, and scanned to get into a mall the way you do to get on a plane right now. And there's already talk and, and test cases of them doing stuff like this. So it's not just the risk to ourselves, but to the freedoms we claim to, to love. What would our nation look like if 20 million people lose their jobs right now? That have no plan for anything else, but I'll just have a job. That have, don't have a night, just a 90 day emergency fund of, of finances to be able to say, okay, at least I'm going to figure shit out over the next three months to figure out what I'm going to do next. So they can figure out whether they're going to move or start a business or adapt or downsize. They just have nothing except a few hundred dollars in unemployment a week. And if it's 20 million, do you think we can pay it all? Let's say that doesn't matter. What happens to you if you lose your job tomorrow? Let's say tomorrow you're all happy, you go into work, you're maybe not in love with your job, but hell, you got a job and it's better than your friend that you just found lost his job, and you walk in and your boss says, we have to talk. And you say, okay, not my office, we have to go to human resources, and you immediately know what that means. It's just a few weeks from Christmas. You got kids, you got a wife, you got a family. Maybe you're supposed to pack those kids and that wife up, put them on an airplane, fly to some other state to be with family. Can you even afford to do that now? I mean, this is reality. For someone, every day this stuff happens. Back to kind of the terroristic thing. Imagine, you know, we just had Jeff Yargo on, and he talked about threats to the electrical grid, specifically from hackers. You know, computer geniuses that can get in and shut down the whole system and blow up transformers and whatever. Okay, maybe. But have you have you seen how electrical power is transported in this country? It primarily goes from pole to pole to pole across wires. How hard do you think it is to damage that? You know those little 
bucket-looking transformers that sit on the side of those poles, they're full of oil. It's pretty close to diesel fuel. Do you know what happens if someone pokes a hole in the bottom of that? Well, all that stuff comes out, and it basically blows the hell up, stops working, catches on fire, overheats. How hard is it to put a hole in there? How about a suppressed 22? How about a suppressed 22 and some guy that goes around sniping electrical transformers? How much chaos can that cause? And just take it up from there to what could be done. You know all those little power substations you see everywhere? What do they have around them? They have a fence with, with barbed wire or constantino wire, maybe razor wire across the top of them. How hard would it be to damage that type of infrastructure? And what could a coordinated attack do to infrastructure like that? I mean, these are just some of the reasons that we need to be prepared. But, but just think about how weak we are. And when I say weak, I don't just mean that, 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 let's say, somebody could take out a whole bunch of the electrical infrastructure for the Dallas-Fort Worth area in a matter of hours. I believe people that were trained and knew what they were doing, and I don't think you need, like, Delta Force training for this shit. I mean, basic coordinated training that, that, that many, many adversarial groups to our nation are capable of could totally disrupt Dallas-Fort Worth to where you're without power in some parts of the city with thousands and tens of thousands of people for maybe a month or more. And if it was done, let's say, Dallas-Atlanta, Chicago, L.A. And then the fear it would put everywhere else. But once it happened, how weak are people? What would happen right now if I came over to your house and just threw your main breaker switch, put an electrified lock box over it, and said... I'll be back in 30 days. If you try to touch that thing, it's going to electrocute the shit out of you. You got no power for 30 days. Bye. And, oh, by the way, I'm doing that to all your neighbors, so you can't rely on them either. You just got to take care of yourself for 30 days. Bye. Now multiply that by 10 or 15 or 20,000 people. And, and don't say it's not possible. Don't even say it's that unlikely. Because weather events can do that. Look at some of the tornadoes we've had in the last few years. The really big ones that fortunately haven't hit metropolitan areas. If they just happen to hit key infrastructure, then even the people that don't have a house on top of them are going without power for weeks or, or months. Ice storms are another example. And yes, there is a legitimate concern about hackers and things like that. And that's just the electrical grid. Disruption to the food supply. If I was an evil prick and I wanted to strike fear into the hearts of America, I might do something like get a hold of some cyanide and starting injecting it in random oranges in supermarkets across the country where there's no tamper-resistant packaging. How much fear does that put into people? And how prepared are they to say, you know what, we can just do without that system of support for a week until somebody figures out what the hell's going on? Most people can't go a week on what's in their house, let alone a month or more. Preparedness is a responsibility. It's not something crazy people do. It's something you're crazy if you don't do. And the only reason you don't think so if you don't is because you were never taught that. 
I want to, before I get into some basic steps, I want to just flip things around for a second and just give you an alternative way of looking at things. So I believe that looking at things in, in reverse of the way you're looking at them today makes your judgment more sound. You can do that with anything. You do that with an issue where, let's say a local government passed a, a law prohibiting something that you think should be prohibited, and the state government overrides them and says, no, you can't do that. You can't prohibit that. It's protected in the state of, let's say, Texas, that, that people have that right. But you really think people shouldn't. Well, it's really easy for you to say, well, I don't care. The state should stay out of, you know, Sheboyganville's business or whatever. But if you, if you litmus test that by switching it around to something you do think people should be allowed to do, And then you judge it on the merits of whether or not that authority should exist at that town or city or county level, then you might have a totally different view of what the state's doing because you have to realize there's other people who think they should have that right to. So in this scenario where we're looking at something like preparedness, I want you to imagine that you grew up and that every American grew up this way. You were taught from the time you were in, let's say, first grade, that it's, it's responsible to have basic preparedness, that you should grow up and you should save your money, and, and, and by the time you're working and paying your own bills, in addition to your retirement and everything else like that, you should build up a 90-day savings. That's just in a regular savings account or some other form where it's liquid and you can easily get to it. So if you lose your job, if anything goes wrong, you're fine for 90 days. And in fact, with rationing and, and common sense and making things go a little further, you'd be good for at least 180 days. You got six months of buffer. You were taught that from the time you were a child. So you did it. And you were also taught that, you know, you're going to eat every day of your life. So you should take the foods that you buy that store easily, uh, that you use often, and you should make sure that you have at least four weeks worth of those foods. And the foods that don't store as easily, you should have, you know, at least a couple weeks. And by combining that, you could probably at least go a month if you couldn't get any food. And you should do that because all types of things could go wrong that might make it where you don't have enough food. Or your neighbors might have some kind of serious problem or accident, and then you would be able to step in and help them with your food until such time as you could replenish your own. And it was responsible to do that. So you had done that. And you were taught to be prepared for, with first aid kit, with all types of things, uh, to be able to leave if you needed to leave your house, to, to have a basic 72-hour kit, All that stuff, you're taught to do it, and you're 25 years old, and you're living that way. And then all of a sudden, people started saying, there's no reason to do this. This is stupid. We should get rid of all this stuff. You should spend that 90 days worth of money or throw it in your 401k so it gives you a better return. You should get rid of that extra food. You don't need it. You'd think that was crazy because you would say, wait a minute. I've covered all these bases, and because of that, I'm living my life so much more fulfilled, with, with, with so much more power, that why in the hell would I give it up? Because it ain't that hard to do in the first place. And, and, and that's the reality. If, if you took people from your grandfather's days and your great-grandfather's days and you brought them forward into the future, they would think two things. Oh my God, what an amazing world. I can't believe the opportunities. I can't believe the technology. I can't believe these people are so lucky. And two, 
I can't believe these people are so stupid. When they look in your refrigerator and your pantry, that's what they think. You're stupid. When they ask you, well, if there's a fire, what are you going to do? And you say, I'm going to pick the phone up and call 911 and jump out the window. I'm telling you when they when you when they said to you well how'd you get all this stuff and you said I bought it on credit they would they would think they're looking at the idiocracy and, and they might be right so let's talk about some basic preparedness first of all it all starts with a basic mindset and that mindset is twofold one we've kind of hammered pretty hard already so I won't go into it deep and that is that you have a responsibility but I think the other side of it is. You know, we talk about rights and responsibilities. You have a right. You have a right to be prepared. You have a right to survive. You have a right to be able to take care of your children. You have a right to be able to take care of your elder parents. You have a right to be able to take care of your spouse. You have a right to be able to take care of your brother and your nieces and your nephew. You have a right to survive and you have a right to defend, support, and take care of the people you love. And nothing and no one should ever interfere with that right. Ever. And I think most people that hear that go, F and A. Of course I have that right. Well, the number one person that gets in the way of that right is the person themselves by not exercising it. The government doesn't prevent you. No group prevents you from having 30 days worth of food in your house. Nobody prevents you from not spending every dime you make and, and putting some aside. Nobody prevents you from any of those things. If you don't have the mindset that you have both the duty and the right to see to your own needs and survival and safety and to those who you love, nothing else I say today will make sense. Once that switch flips, you'll make better decisions. Because life is mostly mental. You win at life, you win with money, you win in business because you mentally have the discipline to do the right things. Everybody knows what the right things to do are. When people poo-poo having some extra food or money or water or something like that, what they're doing is they don't want to hear it because they know they have no excuse and they want to feel better about their own decisions and make you feel like they don't, you don't need it because that way they feel justified in not taking those steps. But everybody knows this. Even the government agencies that talk about how survivalists are crazy or whatever, go to ready.gov. Ready.gov. And you'll see most of the things I say to do, the government says to do. While backslapping and bitch slapping preppers who actually do it. Because they make the point of stating that they did it and advocating that other people do it. And gee, the government just hates competition. I mean, that's what it comes down to. They want you to do the things they say the way they say. They don't want anybody going beyond that. They don't want a nation of free, independent thinkers who are capable of taking care of themselves. But I'll tell you what, they'll be happy for it the day they need us. Because we do have some of these disaster scenarios going on. It's a balance. But you have to start with the mindset you have the right and responsibility of survival. Survival's not an accident. So, some of the stuff we've already talked about, but here's my basic steps. And it's not that hard. You need an emergency fund. It's probably the best place to start out for most people is building an emergency fund. Because the number one thing that will work most of the time for the shit at the fan moments that are in your life only. Just your life. Just you and your family. Um, and that's the most common disaster. The more people affected, the less likely you are to experience it. In other words, 
Consequences of global thermonuclear war, really, really bad. Likelihood you're going to see it, very, very low. Consequences of losing a job, well, if you lose a job and I don't lose my job, I have no consequences at all. So the widespread consequences of a job loss, not that big a deal. You losing your job won't affect the temperature of the water in your neighbor's pool, but it affects you. And it's like a very likely thing. So a, a emergency fund of money will help in that situation. Your car breaking down, money will help in that situation. These are all things that happen the most, so we start with what happens the most. And here's my rules on an emergency fund. The first goal is $1,000. Because if I tell you 90 days of your of your living expenses, or 90 days of your income is better than your expenses. So if, if you make $5,000 a month, let's say, $60,000 a year, and I tell you you need a 90-day emergency fund, you need $15,000. And you're, you're thinking, oh, God, I, I, I'm barely making this. I'll never have... Especially if you're not counting my retirement, my 401k or whatever, I, I'm never going to have that. Well, the first thing we do is we stop contributions to your 401k if you're that hand to mouth with money because you need liquid money. So that way, all of a sudden, all that money becomes available. Don't do it unless you have to, but if you have to, you do it. You start saving money. You start cutting expenses, and you get to a thousand bucks. Even if you could only do a hundred dollars a month, you're only ten months away from that. Something's going to happen to you in that 10 months, though. You're going to fight. You're going to struggle. You're going to set a goal. You're going to meet it. You're going to start to realize, I can do better than this. And then the next thing you know, you'll have $5,000 in that emergency fund. It'll probably take half as long. And somehow, almost as if by magic, if you keep doing that, you'll go from that $1,000 to that 30 days, which is that $5,000, to $10,000, to $15,000. And now we're done with that one. Now we're going to do these other things concurrently as we can. But that's going to be a primary goal. And then you can put whatever money you want to retirement and 401ks and 403bs and gold and silver and whatever you want to do investment-wise. But you get that done first. And when you get a raise, you use that raise to build it up to that new level of income at 90 days. And you keep that in some liquid form so that when some catastrophe hits... Their money's there, you use it, you don't go into credit card debt, you pay yourself back, and you put it back to where it was. You do that. You start with a thousand, then you go for 30 days, then 60 days, then 90 days. The beauty is once you get to 30 days, you just do it two more times. You do it in, like eating an elephant one bite at a time. Uh, the next thing you need, these are two things you really should do. And, and a lot of times they can be done with stuff you already have and maybe only buying a little thing here and there to make them better. Two things every American should have is what I call a blackout kit and a bug out kit. And the blackout kit is the one you probably have most of what you need for it. A blackout kit makes sense to use like a box or a crate or something that will go on a shelf somewhere. And it's all the stuff you need if the power fails. Candles, flashlights, batteries, what have you. I won't go into building it individually today. I have shows on it. If you just look up blackout kit on the on the podcast, you can find them if you want to. Uh, but you know what you need when the power goes out. And then you might move that into things like having a backup generator, a battery backup system, and things like that. But at least have basic stuff that when the power goes out, it's all in one place. Maybe there's two of them, one upstairs and one downstairs. Put in some power failure lights. These are little lights that look like a night light. They plug into an outlet in your wall. They stay out. When the power goes off, they turn on. 
The good ones you can pull out and use them like a flashlight. Now we can get to where we need to be to get the stuff out of the blackout kit and get the house lit up so we can start putting our shit together because the power's out. Especially when it happens at 10 o'clock at night, the kids are in their room watching TV, you finally get time to take a shower and you have soap in your eyes. Okay? This is not a good time to be fumbling around looking for stuff. So you get that done. A bug out kit. A bug out kit is also known as a 72-hour kit. If you go online, you'll see all kinds of tactical gear bags that people put together look like they're going out to fight a war. That is not a standard, normal person's 72-hour kit. A 72-hour kit is all the stuff you need to live in relative comfort for three days. You need one, your wife needs one, your husband needs one, what have you, and your kids need one. Everybody needs one. You can throw them in a car, you can take off. If you have to leave, you're going to be okay for three days. That's food, that's clothing, it's comfort items. Again, we've done whole shows on it, but those two things are important. And I'm going to tell you some real examples of times that I've seen stuff like this be necessary, or at least could have been necessary. One was when I was a very young child, probably 10, 11 years old. We had a knock on the door one night, fire department, there was lights going everywhere, and a uh, big apartment complex we lived in at the time. Everybody out, get out. And there was a uh, water treatment plant across the street, and they were in the middle of having a major chlorine leak that was getting worse and worse and worse, and chlorine gas was pouring out of this. Like, basically, get out of here, get out of here. They were telling some some you know people as, as we were getting out, put a towel over your face, you know, things like that. So everybody hauls ass, you know, a couple miles up the road, and people are just parked all over the place, waiting for the all-clear to go back. Well, fortunately, we got the all-clear to go back, but I remember that we were wholly unprepared at that point. And when I think about my, my, you know, my, my part of my childhood in Pennsylvania, it doesn't make sense to me, but I get it because my dad had moved to Florida. He was running a gas station. He was working seven days a week. You know, we lived in an apartment. You just, you, you forget where your roots are. I know I did too at one point in my life. And so that really happened. Fortunately, they were able to contain it and we were only, you know, sitting out basically in our PJs in the back of my dad's station wagon for about four hours. But we were not prepared. I mean, he, as cheap as the old man was, he was close to trying to find a hotel, which by looking around us might have been hard because a lot of other people had already made that decision. The, the hell with it. We're, we're going to go sleep for the night, and we'll come back in the morning and see what's up. Or they had gone to family or friends or things like that. But another example is that, that doesn't seem like the same type of thinking. I had someone that wrote into me and said, because of you, I was able to be with my kid. And what had happened is the kid had gone into a medical emergency and had to go to a hospital that was pretty far from home. And because they had 72-hour kits, you know, they didn't have to worry about going home to get stuff. They just went there, and they were able to basically camp out on the floor in the kid's hospital room for a couple of days until things got better and he could be moved to another facility. So those are just two real-world examples. There's t people have to leave. You don't think people are leaving Tennessee, parts of Tennessee right now? I mean, seriously. So bug out kit, blackout kit. I think that every American that's responsible should build your pantry at least 30 days deep. Now, I actually advocate more stored food than 30 days. But if, if it was a matter of standard procedure that the average family kept a 30-day supply of food in their pantry. Now, and, and listen, this is not 
you know, grade A steak and stuff like this. This is the the storable, naturally storable goods that you're using anyway. And then started to think a little bit about how to extend that with things like how can we preserve meat or or how can we, you know, produce some of our own food. And, and if people could go 30 to 45 days without a trip to the grocery store and maybe not be really happy about it, you know, not like, oh, well, it was great, you know. I mean, but, like, no one's really hungry. No one's really starving. No one's really worried about, hey, are we going to be able to eat five days from now? That 95% of what could go wrong in this country, it pertains to the food supply, um, would be averted. And this includes things like job losses and things like that. I, I can't tell you how many people I've heard from that lost jobs. That say it's the emergency fund, it's the living below our means, and it's the food storage to make us know if it takes six months for me to find something better, it doesn't matter, we're fine. That's when I know I'm, I'm doing my job, when I get emails like that. So thank you to those of you who have said them. But build that pantry at least 30 days deep. Then the next one, water storage. It is the most fundamental need human beings have. It is the cheapest thing that we can do. And that is why we take it for granted and we don't do it. And that doesn't mean you need to go out like I have and, and get two 1,500-gallon poly tanks and set up roof catchment um, and, and do some other things that are you know maybe a little bit extreme in the minds of some. I run a farm, so all that water is very valuable to us. But it could be as simple as saving or getting from other people if you don't drink crap like soda, soda bottles. The big two-liter ones are great. They're very strong plastic. They last forever. Um, and they're better in your, your pantry holding surplus water for you than they are in a landfill. They really are. Uh, Arizona iced tea, one-gallon jugs, those work great. My father-in-law used to be addicted to those. And, uh, you know, he's been in a memory care facility for over a year now. We still have tons of those. He was going through about two a week. And we just took them all, and, I mean, we use them all the time. They're durable. They're, they're made to hold something that's acidic. So once they're cleaned out, they hold water wonderfully. When we have our any of our freezers not completely full, we take bottles, fill it with water, leave some headspace, and we fill the, the freezer with them. Why? They're a battery. They're a thermal battery, an isothermal battery. When the power goes off, don't even worry about our freezers for the first day. Now, this is defrosted in there. Not with all that ice, all that frozen material. That the, the whole thing's completely closed up. Maybe we throw a big old moving blanket on or something for extra insulation. We're not worried about that. we got other stuff to worry about. You know, we'll plug the generator into it and run it for four hours the next day if, if we get that far. Because we have that stored water and we have that stored in the form of ice as well. Store water. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's less than a penny a gallon. But... What do people pay for it when they can't get it? And if you look wherever disaster strikes, one of the first things that gets cleaned out in grocery stores and convenience stores is water and other things you can drink. So store water. Next, basic first aid kits for home and car and basic training on how to use the stuff. I had a buddy back in high school that uh, lost touch with. 
And when I started doing the show, I was about two years into it. I was starting to get some real traction, building a big audience and stuff like that. And I occasionally would hear from people that I knew in the past that had found my show, like, holy shit, I don't know what you're doing. This guy sent me an email, and he said he had just, he wanted me to know that because of the show, he was getting his house in order and all, and he had just bought this, uh, it was like called a Stomp Hospital Trauma Kit or something like that. I think Cheaper Than Dirt was selling it, and it wasn't cheaper than dirt. It was like 500 bucks. And it was a really high-end kit. But this is a guy that like flunked biology in 10th grade and has no medical training. And my response was, dude, what are you going to do with all this stuff? You don't know how any of it works. You know, you might want to get some training to go along with that. So, and then I think in other places, lots of people have first aid kits in their home. Very few people seem to keep first aid kits in their car. And you should have some basic first aid gear in your bug out bag, which should be in your vehicle, okay? But not a full kit. There's a limit to how much we can carry it. A 72-hour kit needs to be something you can throw on your back and go to a shelter if you have to. I'll never end up in a shelter, said every person that ever ended up in a shelter, okay? But if you think about it, we spend as much time, actually more time, On average, if we don't count time we're asleep, we spend more time away from home than at home. And we spend a lot of time in our cars. But in general, if you're somewhere away from home, and if some medical emergency strikes, your vehicle's usually not that far away. If you're camping in the middle of the wilderness or something, you have to see to other needs. But just think about day-to-day where you go and what you do, and how far are you ever really from your car. Some of you will say quite far. The majority of you, though, you're never more than a five-minute walk. You go to work. You're in an office building. They have first aid kits there. Gee, I hope so. And if something happens in a parking lot and you're there and you can render aid and your car's there and you work on the fifth floor, I'm just saying, what if it's somebody you care about? I mean, we should care about everybody, but if it's somebody you really care about and eh, it just wasn't important enough to do. First aid kits in home and vehicle and basic first aid knowledge and training. You have to have that. A lot of it you can obtain from the Red Cross for free. You know, make it a family event. Take your kids. Go meet some people. If you're at a place like that and you meet people that are getting free basic first aid training, they're probably one local to your area. They, no one, you know, travels from Jacksonville, Florida to Dallas, Texas to take free basic first aid training from the Red Cross. They go to Jacksonville's one. But two, they're concerned about some of the same things you're concerned about. They might be good people to know. It might be the beginning of building some stronger community, which also I think is a responsibility we've abdicated, but we'll do that on another day. Um, I also believe you should have some form of backup power and lighting beyond flashlights and some LED lanterns. Those are a great start. Uh, I'm going to have an item tomorrow that I'm going to feature on, on the on the blog for Amazon Item of the Day that is some great, inexpensive little LED lanterns. Amazing little product. They can, you know, for $50, bucks, you'd have a light in every room in your house for 12 hours with some cheap batteries. And that's good. Flashlights, all that stuff's good. But you need a source of backup power. Now, one of the things we've learned from Stephen Harris, and I think this is just phenomenal, is by getting a simple 800-watt inverter that you can clamp onto the battery of your car, you can have power to your house. 
You can run your refrigerator. That's probably all you're going to do. But you can run your refrigerator for a couple hours. And if you have a chest freeze, you can run that for a couple hours. Then you can run other things in your house. But the other thing you can do is you can plug into that thing an end-loop battery charger to charge double and triple-A batteries and have an endless supply of power, especially if you have some reserve fuel, which we'll talk about in a second. And that means that everybody that's out there thinking, well, I should have a generator, you probably should. A standalone, just like you're talking about it, you should probably have a generator. I, I would put that as one of the things here. But how much money do you have? How much capital? How far along are you walking? What do you need first? But most people are sitting there with a thirty or $40,000 generator sitting in their driveway. Most families are sitting there with two of them, and they don't realize with a $50 to $60 part, an inverter, they can't have enough power to run their central air, but they can have AC power with some extension cords and adapters anywhere in their house just by idling their car. You add that, a small generator, and then if you build yourself... A backup battery system. I built my backup battery system for a couple hundred bucks. It's four marine batteries sitting on one of those tough plastic shelves you get from Walmart, wired together to stay 12 volts. You can look on battery one, two, three, four and see how to do that. Two 800 watt inverters, 12 volt DC, USB for charging phones and stuff like that. All of that's there for a couple hundred bucks. Now, the beauty is, I can take my little generator, set it outside my window, and run the battery charger to top it back up during the day and then have that quiet power all night. Or I can run an extension cord in the front room down the hallway and go to a, an inverter off of my, my truck, and I can power it. Now I actually have a whole power station in the toolbox in the back of the truck, but we won't go there. We'll stay simple. Because anybody can build what I was just talking about. So with a small generator, a backup battery system, and an inverter for your vehicle... You are set for power, especially if like two weeks or less loss. You know, then we got to start thinking about some solar here and there and some stuff like that. But man, you're set pretty good with that. A whole bunch of batteries for your LED lights. You're in pretty good shape. And then a bunch of rechargeable batteries that can be used as well that we can use these other systems to charge. So what do we need now? Reserve fuel. Because that truck, that car, that generator, that you, you know, use for power and that car that you might finally, you know, need, I need to go somewhere and get, now I can go get supplies and there's a mile long line at the gas station because everybody else just got out at the same time, decided to fill up. None of that stuff runs on, on jelly beans. It runs on gas or diesel. So whatever you use, you should store. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. The easiest system I know of, the one that makes the most sense is you buy a gas can this month and it's December. So you write 12 on it. Next time you go fill your car up, you fill up the gas can, you bring it home, you put it somewhere safe to store gasoline, you set it down on the ground. In January, you find the funds, you buy a gas can. Five-gallon gas can. You write a one on it. You go to the next time you go to fill your car up, you fill up the number one gas can. If you have the financial resources, buy two. Write a one on one, two on the other. One's January, one's February. Put them on the ground. In February, go buy three and four and five and six and so on until you have gas cans numbered one through 12. Once you do that, you get back to 12. That gas has been there a year. Gas stores for a year just fine. You can add some stabilizer to it if you want to, but gas stores for a year fine in a proper gas can. You take the can number 12. You dump it into your car or your truck. You throw the empty can into the back of your truck. 
You go to the gas station. You fill up your truck. You fill up the can. You bring it home. You put it back on the ground. You have 60 gallons at all times. If you have two vehicles, it would make sense to have double the amount. But I am okay with anybody saying 60 gallons of gasoline is enough. In five-gallon cans, it's easily transportable. Uh, twice. So if people say, well, it's all about taking care of yourself then. Well, yeah, it is about taking care of yourself. It's not all about it. It is because you, if you won't take care of you, who's going to? But see, the prepared are able to help other people. I've had twice since I've moved to this very place, looked out and seen somebody on the side of the road up by my front gate, one of my other gates, just sitting there in a car. Well, I live in the kind of place where people don't just do that unless something's up. And there's two ways something's up. The bad nefarious way and something bad happened to them way. Those are the only two reasons you're going to see somebody sitting on the side of my road. You don't, you just don't pull up in front of, especially Texas, a gated, you know, farm and pull up next to the gate and sit there. Up next to the fence and sit there. Unless you're casing the place, you know, you're pulling some bullshit or you're in trouble. So I always walk up. And, and in the words of General Mattis, I'm courteous and I'm professional, but I have a plan to kill everybody I meet. I really mean that. Because if the person is dangerous, there's some drugs around here and stuff like that, there's theft around here, I'm armed. But I always want to see if I can help. Because I, I always know that it's more likely that that person needs assistance than that person doesn't. And the two times I've seen it happen were both times... Well, the person's out of gas. And I am professional, but I'm always like, can I help you? That's a great way to introduce yourself to somebody that maybe shouldn't be there. And it, it sends a message, and it always comes back with a little trepidation, you know, I ran out of gas. Need a phone so you can call somebody? No, I've already called somebody. All right, I'll be right back. And you see people a little nervous. That's fine. And you got the dogs running around barking off. I don't know who you are yet. But I assume when you say you're out of gas, you're out of gas. And I, I walk my ass to my one of my buildings, and I come back out with a five-gallon can of gas, and I hand it to them. And if they, if I look at the vehicle, that's a diesel vehicle, I come out with a five. That's the beauty with me. I got a diesel and a gas, so I got diesel and gas. And I hand it to them. Let me tell you something. Both times, the people were like, thank you so much, filled up their vehicle and went on their way. If they're lying, you'll know. It serves two purposes. You're a good person. You're helping out your fellow man. You'd want somebody to help you if you were in that situation. But I ran out of gas as an old scam. It's an old scam. The last time I was confronted with it was in a parking lot. You know, the bullshit. I'm out of gas and I need to get home and I'm just trying to, I need 10 bucks. And really? Why? Well, I need to get home. 10 bucks worth of gas will do it. Yeah, I just happened to be filling up three of my cans. Where's your car? Oh, it's over there in the back of the lot. Well, well, I'll drive over there and put gas in it for you. What? I got some gas cans in my truck. I'll just, I'll just pour gas in your car for you, and you can go home, and uh, and I'll come back over and fill my can up before I go home. By the way, I'm going to sit here and see if you leave. Didn't want my gas. Disappeared. Just saying. Being prepared makes you able to help those who need to be helped and prevent victimization of others. 
Because how many people feel bad for the guy that has a really compelling story that he just needs 10 bucks to get home to his kid? Well, he was going to have to practice his shit somewhere else that day. Just saying. Um, so reserve fuel. Emergency heating options. If you live in the South, it's less important. But even, like, it's going to be 26 or 28 degrees tomorrow night here. Or is it Thursday night here? That's pretty damn cold to not have heat. So some form of backup heat. If you have a house with a fireplace and a little pile of firewood, you know, out back, that's not really backup heating. If you don't use your fireplace often, you have no idea how fast you'll go through wood. And if that wood sits there season after season, it's going to rot and decay. It's really going to burn terribly uh, inefficiently and fast. And you're going to go through it quickly. A fireplace is not even a great backup heating source. It's better nothing, but it only heats the general area around it, and 80% goes up the chimney. If you have a fireplace and you like to rely on it as a, a serious backup form of, of heat, you need to get yourself a fireplace insert that basically turns your fireplace into a halfway sort of kind of a wood-burning stove, and those are pretty damn efficient. And then you need to have enough wood to run it. The fastest, most expedient, most reliable thing you can do for, for backup heat is to go get one or two kerosene heaters and store, just like you store gasoline, store enough kerosene to run them. Um, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and fake bullshit around and people dying and whatever. I, I mean, I don't know if you tape your room up like a safe room and turn it up on high... Uh, and, and disable the safety features, I guess you can kill yourself with one. But modern kerosene heaters have automatic shutoff. Uh, they, y you have to be dumb about how you run them to get them to smoke. If you run the wick too high, you can cause them to smoke, but you just don't do that. And they have automatic shutoff if they get tipped over. They throw a lot of heat. They're incredibly efficient. And you only need to heat a room or two in that situation to keep everybody warm. When we lived in Pennsylvania, um, we had power go out once in a while. We had electric baseboard heating, which is terrible, but it's what the house came with. And we, at the time, we couldn't afford to put anything any better in. Um, but we got two kerosene heaters. And there was a, a screwed-up coal stove that wasn't worth fixing downstairs. And eventually the plan was I was going to put a new stove in there. But to make that stove efficient, they'd cut a hole in the floor above it and put a grate over it that you could walk over and it's back in the corner so that, so that heat could come from that room up into the upstairs. And with one kerosene heater upstairs on the other side of the house and one downstairs, the house was pleasant even when the power was out. And we had actually figured out that by burning a small amount of kerosene, we could actually save money on our electric bill. So we had an emergency prep that we used in the coldest period of time anyway. And it was multifunctional. And that's the kind of function stacking I believe in. The next would be an interior, you know, a safe interior propane heater. Those are your two best bets for if you don't have the infrastructure in place, i.e. a coal stove, a wood stove, a fireplace insert, uh, those types of things for emergency heating options. But have something. Next up, you should have documentation and evacuation folders. I have a whole podcast on this. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Um, a, a gentleman that I spoke to right after I started TSP, I was only in like episode 100 and something when I did this. Uh, he master sergeant uh, in the Marine Corps, been there over 20 years, said that is the best explanation of that level of preparedness I've ever heard of. It's probably the most important thing you've ever done. It will save lives and it will save families. 
And I'm pretty proud of that one, given how long ago it was. But what I'm talking about is, basically, you should have a folder in your vehicles. If you have two vehicles, you should have two. And you should have one in the house. And this should give you access to everything you need to know, where your banks are, your bank phone numbers, your bank account numbers. I don't want somebody to get my bank account number. Listen to the episode. I tell you how to encrypt your bank account number so that you can easily look at it and figure out what your account numbers are, but no criminal is ever going to figure it out. They're never, NSA will figure it out. No criminal is ever going to figure it out. They wouldn't even know what it was when they looked at it. But also things like four or five hotels you know, within 20 miles of your house and four or five hotels within like 100 miles of your house in different directions. That if you had to, you had to fall back to staying at a hotel for a while, you immediately can pull your thing up, okay, uh, Courtyard Marriott there, boom, bam, I want a room before everybody else does. Yes, survivalists do bug out to hotel rooms when it makes sense. And sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's just already having that chosen and being able to th to be free to think of other shit. More than one person has written into me, total loss, house fire. Total loss. Nothing recoverable. You're spending that night in a hotel. And usually the insurance company will pay for that. I just want you to put yourself in a position. Your kids are crying. Your spouse is upset. Everything is gone. Everybody's alive. Everybody's safe. Nobody's hurt. But you're standing looking at the final flames and smoldering remains of your house as the fire department puts it out. They're getting ready to board up the windows. And you just can't go inside. It's not safe. And you get State Farm or Allstate or whoever on the phone. They say, just get a hotel for the night. It's covered. In that moment, being able to just go to your car and just, there's the number. You don't have to think. That's being prepared. That's as real as I can make it for you. And you might think it's a small thing, but it's not in that moment. And it also lets you, as a leader of your family, stand up and say, well, we're going here. Do you know what the people that depend on you need at that moment? Decisiveness. Because that says, Dad knows what the F is up. Dad's got it figured out. Dad's going to make sure we're going to be okay. And you think, that's no big deal. I could just look up any phone. You have to think about that in some scenarios, you're so mentally shocked that it's like doing something with major impairment. That's why I believe like if you have backup power and stuff and, and switches, you take big pieces of tape and write, turn this one on, on it. You have a book written in, in you know, like four dummies for yourself, even though you built it that reminds you how everything works. Because it's different when you have a flashlight in your teeth and you're freezing cold. It absolutely is. So absolutely make sure you have that documentation package. This would include things like, well, who would you call to fix the fact that a tree fell on your house during a storm? Because everybody else is making that call. Whoever makes first is first in line. Well, I'll do it myself. I have a chainsaw. Okay, when the tree fell, it came through your door, and you've been injured, and you're in the ER, and your wife needs the tree off of the roof. Or you were out hunting when it happened. Or you were on a business trip when it happened. Or when it happened, 
it's smashed into your, your, your garage and you can't get in there where your chainsaw is. Or there's a whole lot of other things going on right now that you need to take care of and it'd be better if somebody else did that at this moment. You just happen to have a sports injury the day before it happened and you're just not in any condition to do it. It happens. I walked around with a limp for about two months this last spring. And for the first couple of weeks, I was completely useless. I really was. It was very humbling. I think it was probably why it happened, so I could learn from that experience. So I could pass it on to you guys. Absolutely have that documentation evacuation folder. Where would you go? How would you get there? Different routes. Because there's another thing it does for you. For some reason, you have to evacuate. Your teenage daughter is flipping out. You're at work. She's at school. Your spouse has already gone home, picked up the younger kids, and is hauling ass to rally point A. Your teenage daughter needs to not go home. She needs to go to the right place. She needs to take the route that makes sense for her based on where she is. She is flipping out. She's scared. She doesn't know what to do. You say, honey, look under the passenger seat. Pull out the book. Turn to page four. You have one that looks just like it. All of them look exactly the same. That's the point. You see on page four, you see that map? You see the big letter S? That's for your school. That's where you are. Do you see where that is? Yes. Mom and me are going to here. Just go there and we'll meet you. I have to go home. Your mom's already taking care of getting your stuff. Just go there. You could be shitting your pants. They can't know it. That's a big part of this stuff with documentation. So you can just make, you've already made the decision and now you're just reminding yourself of these decisions. You can give people something to do. I can't tell you how important that is. Your teenage daughter's flipping her shit. You know what she's good with? She's good with a phone. Honey, fine. You put on Facebook that we're safe. You took a picture of it, whatever. That's fine. And here's what you need to do. Here's the book. Turn to this page. Start calling and texting everybody in here and let them know that even though they're seeing this on the news, that Gatlinburg's on fire right now, we're okay. We're safe. They don't have to worry about us. That does two things. It alleviates your family's concern, and it gives your freaking out teenage daughter something she can do to help. And now you feel start to feel like you're working as a team. There's leadership in place. Confidence is restored. And the morale is boosted. And you're going to get through this shit. Because even when you know you're going to get through it, your kids don't. They're kids. You have a responsibility to lead them. And this is one way you can do it. It's that important. I think you should have security protocols and procedures. I'm going to go brief on this because we're going longer than I thought today. So a security protocol or security procedure is just the way you normally operate. Okay? So we lock the door when we come home. You come home, you come inside, you lock the door. That's just what you do. There's no exceptions to that. When you leave the house, you let somebody know where you're going You let somebody know when to expect you back, and you damn well take a means of communication like a cell phone with you. Okay, These are basic security procedures. If you meet someone who starts asking you strange questions, you don't give them any information, you break contact and you go away, because that's weird. Stranger danger, right? Security procedures. We don't leave the garage door open in the middle of the day because someone will come in and steal shit. This is your peacetime 
way that you operate from making sure that you're just being smart and safe. Protocols are what you initiate when something goes wrong. When all the power's out in the neighborhood, there's greater security risk. If you don't believe it, turn on a TV wherever it happens. So then it might be no one goes anywhere outdoors alone. That might be a bit of an excessive rule if you have children that are old enough in peacetime. But at that point, there's greater danger, at least two people everywhere. And you can build your own procedures and protocols, but have them. Have everybody versed in them. Because this is another thing that gives people a sense of morale. Now that this happened, well, what are we going to do? We're going to do exactly what we plan to do. You know? Dad and Bill are going to go get the generator set up. We're going to go to the blackout kit. We're going to, by the way, it's dark out. We don't know what's going on, so nobody goes anywhere alone. Anybody goes outside, you go with somebody. We've now upped the protocol. That's all I'll give you on that. But have that system. It doesn't cost anything. Documentation kit costs five bucks to put together. It's a few folders. You also need a health and sanitation plan. Because sometimes when water doesn't work and you don't have enough water, flushing toilets doesn't work. And that gets gross fast with a few people in a house. The low-tech solution to this, an old toilet seat, a five-gallon bucket, a bunch of garbage bags, and a bunch of bottles of the blue stuff for RVs. It's gross, but it works. Adults, men especially, but any anyone really it's old enough, you can pee outside. Where and how do you deal with it? But a pile of straw to pee on, you're just making compost. You can make a, a toilet in the ground if you can dig a deep enough hole. It works. It's a short-term solution, but it works. You should at least know that it's possible so nobody freaks out when they have to do it. Is it possible where you are? I can't do it here. I can't dig a deep enough hole to do that responsibly and safely and sanitized way. Right? We happen to have a septic tank. So sewage system's not working around here. I don't really care. I'm okay. Still got to flush it. I have 24,000 gallons in an above-ground pool. Gallon of water out of that in the back tank of the toilet, down it goes. It works. But you got to have a plan. What are you going to do with all your garbage? you got to have a protocol that you handle waste a little differently during some sort of an emergency. Because you, you can't rely on the fact that the garbage men are coming on Monday. So you have to think a little bit more about what you're doing with your waste. You might have to have uh, decide it's maybe start time to burn all your paper and burnable waste if it's safe to do, just for less bulk, so you can get through a period of time when there's going to be you know refuse and rubble everywhere, and maybe there's a time when that's not safe. You need to think about these things in advance. Again, this is free. Health and sanitation plans, safety protocols, security protocols. It's just it's it's not you just got to think about it in advance. And I think we should have materials and tools for basic and emergency repairs. If you don't have a few tarps, you're wrong. Storm damage, leaky roof, assuming you can get up there safely, put a couple tarps over some holes, you can stay in your home. Your home doesn't get damaged and, and messed up and destroyed. When you, when you see a tornado go through uh, an area here in Texas that's not a, you know, not, not a house leveler, just a damaging tornado, the next day you see tarps all over these roofs. And they might stay like that for a couple months. It's better to do it as soon as possible. Things like that. Basic toolkit 
and know how the basic stuff in your house works. Know how to shut your water off. Do you know how to shut your water off? Let me try it a different way. Have you ever done it? Because you don't know unless you've done it. You think you know. Well, just go to that box and turn that key. Does it work? Does it work? Will it turn? Do you have the right tool for it? Is that actually the box that has the water shutoff valve in it? So having the basic tools, the knowledge, and materials to deal with things in your house. If you have gas, how do you shut the gas off to the house? How do you shut the gas off to the stove without shutting it off to the rest of the house? I mean, that's pretty simple. But a lot of people that move into a house with a gas stove, and it's the same stove that was there when they bought it, or when they got a new one because they didn't like the old one, the installer came and installed it, they never even looked, they just said put it there. You pull the stove out, there's usually a line connecting to the back of the, 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 the stove, and there's a little valve on it. So the stove malfunctions and it's leaking gas, and you can shut the main off. You don't have gas to any of the other things in your house that run on gas. But if you know the stove's, you can't, like, you know the stove's leaking, pull the stove off, shut the line off. Maybe you shut the main off. Just it's the fastest thing. But then you come in, you shut your stove off, and you can bring your gas back online. Open your windows, vent the house out, what have you. Just an example. You know, do you know how your garage door opener works? People don't. Garage door malfunctions. Garage door opener malfunctions. Okay? Can't get the car out. Some of you that know how to do it are laughing. But, I mean, I had a friend, and his, his, his job was he was a, he called himself an automotive storage entry specialist. He worked for Overhead Door. His parents actually owned the Overhead Door uh, franchise over Dallas-Fort Worth. And he installed garage doors and garage door openers, and he also did service calls. And his most common service call was, the garage door opener's not working. I can't get my car out of the garage. Some of you are just shaking your heads. Some of you are like, oh, well, I don't know what I would do. You go out into the garage and you look up, there's a little string hanging. There's a little release, emergency release. You pull it down and now you can open the garage door manually. You can close it manually. You can go back around your house and re-engage it. It's also security risk because people that know how can push your garage door down and get in there and pull that thing down. So putting a little tie wrap on it to keep somebody from the outside they ain't supposed to be able to do that on it is a, is a good thing too. That's just a little bonus for you there. But did you know that? If you did, fine. But do you know how many people don't? And my buddy, to be fair, was a nice guy. He'd go, okay, let me tell you what to do. And I'll come work on your, you know, door opener later, you know. I'm not going to charge you an emergency fee for this, and you need to get to work, and just go out, pull the string, and yeah, that's all I know. Just lift it up. Yeah, there you go. I mean, people that, you know, that call overhead door for stuff like that, I say the houses he worked on, they were $400, $500 houses. People don't know how the basic stuff works and basic repairs in your home. Learn that stuff. Because in the end, knowledge and skills are the most important thing of all of them. Knowing how to do stuff is, is more important than things. If you know how to do stuff, you can improvise. I can't tell you how many times I look around the house and think, oh, i got to get this done, and I really need X, and I don't have X. 
And all I do is start walking through my shop buildings, my eyes, like I'm in a grocery store, you know, looking for that, that snack. There's something here that will make this work. And, oh, yeah, that'll do. And every time you do it, you get smarter at improvising, you know, and overcoming. So learn basic skills and have the right mental state. Remember, it all starts out in the beginning with a specific mindset. You have a right and a responsibility to be prepared. You have a right and a responsibility to survive. You have a right and a responsibility to take care of your loved ones. You have a right. You have a right to survive. And you have a right not just to survive. You have a right to be able to get through bad situations without being in the worst way possible. You have a right to improve your standing. You have a right to improve your ability to adapt. You have a right to all these things. You have a responsibility to do it for yourself because nobody's going to do it for you. That's the truth. They should be teaching you this in like 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. But they don't. So, if you are new to the show, if somebody turns you on to this today, are you going to exercise your rights? Are you going to live up to your responsibilities? And more importantly, if your parents, since you know damn well the school system isn't going to teach this stuff to your kids, are you going to? I hope so. If you like this show and you like the work I do, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. So if you say today, you know what, Jack? Jack gave me 20 cents worth of value today, and you're not a member, consider joining. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members and sign up there. But remember, it's not just, hey, I like the show, so here's some money, Jack. Uh, there's discounts to over 60 vendors in the MSB, 60. And it's stuff that you're probably going to buy anyway. It's stuff that we've talked about today, honestly. So check it out and uh, and just consider joining because it's how we've been able to build this show and the multiple communities around it into what they are today. Without your support, it would have never happened. I'd still be working in marketing somewhere, be miserable, and probably ready to blow my brains out. So please consider supporting my work. The other way you can support this show is uh, you can go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com, whenever you're going to shop on Amazon. Once you go to tspaz, you click a link. After you click that link, you end up at amazon.com. Then you do your shopping on Amazon like you always do, and we get support uh, financially for your transactions. We get credit as the affiliate that referred you to Amazon. Even though you're buying dog diapers or... Go to F to Sleep, which is a book somebody bought last week, which I thought was hysterical. Um, a book for tired parents everywhere. You know, just whatever you're going to buy. You're going to buy a gift for your significant other this this fall, or gifts for the kids, or for the family, or order some food, or whatever, whatever you're going to buy on Amazon. Just buy it through T-Spass. That's all you got to do to support us. But, you know, I'm the guy that believes that if I ask for something, I should give something in return. Uh, that's how I've built every business I've ever built, is always giving the customer more than they paid for. Or doing more for the customer than the customer does for you, even if you're not directly charging them money. So I put out a review every day. And the reason I do that is because even people that don't buy the item can learn from the article. Uh, today's article uh, features an item on Amazon called Frontier Whole Chamomile Flower Tea. Frontier is one of the three brands that I really recommend you check out primarily on Amazon for bulk herbs and teas. Uh, I love chamomile. Chamomile is a great herb. It's medicinal and it tastes good. I mean, what more can you ask for? Um, the chamomile I recommend from all three providers, but specifically Frontier is the best deal. 
I, I recommend chamomile. You always get chamomile that is whole flower. So you've got, you know, petals and little pieces of petal here and there. But when you look at it, it's got the center of the flower, the whole center of the flower, like a little yellow-orange button. If you don't have that, it's sifted, you know, cut up, chopped. You don't know what you're getting. You want that whole because that's what tastes great. That, that's what has that wonderful color. That's what does all the wonderful things medicinally for us. Uh, it's a great tea on its own right, this stuff, and it's like 13 bucks a pound. I mean, compared to that, it's tea you get in tea bags. It's, it's ridiculous. I make a couple different teas with it. I have both of the recipes up. I have my, uh, my morning blend and my spearmint orange winter warmer, both published on the article today. You can see it, tea spaz. Um, and, uh, I also have my three flowers blend recipe, which is chamomile, heather, and elder. And you can use those in the three flower blend for mead making if you're a mead maker. I think some other things you might want to know about chamomile, it's wonderful for bees. You beekeepers, if you make up a really strong chamomile tea and then add that to your uh, your sugar syrup when you're feeding your bees, you're, you're either one-to-one -one or two-to-one sugar syrup, uh, it's really great for your bees, and they seem to enjoy it too as well. Um, and chamomile tea can suppress mold. So when I'm growing microgreens, what I'll do is I make some chamomile tea and I put a little spray bottle And as the greens start to come up, a lot of times they get mold and dampening off and stuff. And if you mist them with chamomile tea, you don't get the mold. And once I saw that, so I do my sunflower seeds for my ducks every day. They soak in a bucket overnight, and then they go into different buckets until they sprout. Well, I start to get mold on them. Take a pinch of chamomile tea or chamomile, throw it into your, your, your soaking bucket, and now you've got chamomile-infused sun, uh, sunflower sprouts for your ducks, but you get no mold. So chamomile is some pretty awesome stuff. You can even make a pretty badass herbal cough drop using chamomile and other herbs. And I have a link to an article where you can learn how to do that. Um, and as I said, there's actually three companies on Amazon I recommend for your herbs. They are Davidson's, Frontier, and Star West Botanicals. Everything I've ordered from all of them. Organic, high quality, great price. So usually what I do... As I look up, I'll look up by chamomile. I look at the three of them for a pound, and whoever's the least, that's who I buy from because they're all good. And it switches around who's less for what. Uh, they're usually with a buck or two of each other. So sometimes I don't even check. Sometimes I'll just like bulk spearmint, bulk peppermint, whatever. And if it comes up Frontier and I see it, I, okay, I'll buy that. If I see Davidson's and Frontier, which whatever ones cost less. And I've never been disappointed in any of them. The only, And I list links in the article for all the ingredients and the teas and stuff like that. And the only one that's not one of those from one of those three providers is the elderflower. And I found a good supplier of that because they don't do elderflower. My actual preferred supplier of, uh, uh, not elderflower, I'm sorry, heatherflower. My preferred provider of heatherflowers is a, a company called Mountain Rose Herbs. And they don't sell on Amazon. They only sell direct, but they are completely out of heather. Uh, probably because of what I've done to them with promoting three flowers blend in the mead communities. But uh, chamomile is great stuff, man. And herbs are a great way to tonify yourself. This morning, um, you know, right now i got a little bit left in my cup. I have my spearmint orange winter warmer tea. One part spearmint, one part orange peel, one part chamomile. Better than anything you can buy at a store, pre-mixed. And if you compare what it would cost if you bought tea in bags, it's you know, you're saving a fortune. And then take all the loose tea and feed it to the worms in the worm bin. It's it's a, a complete cycle here, guys. So anyway, tspaz.com for your Amazon shopping. Brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day is Song of the South by Alabama. And uh, 
I've always liked Alabama. I think they're the greatest country band that's ever existed. Um, I'm going to read to you two stanzas out of the song. It's toward the end of the song. And tell you why I think it ties into some of the stuff we talked about today. So, well, somebody told us Wall Street fell, but we were so poor that we couldn't tell. The cotton was short and the weeds were tall, but Mr. Roosevelt was going to save us all. Well, Mama got sick and Daddy got down. The county got the farm and we moved to town. Papa got a job with the TVA. We bought a washing machine and then a Chevrolet. The song talks about being poor, but being able to make a living off the land and being able to take care of each other and yourselves. But you see what happens in the end? Papa gets a job with the TVA. That would be the Tennessee Valley Authority. And uh, established in 1933. So, boy, it fits right in with that Mr. Roosevelt's going to save us all and everything, right? And once you get a job and an income, they go out and buy a washing machine and a Chevrolet. And at that point, families in America still practiced basic preparedness like we talked about today. None of them would have been blown away by anything I said today. Like, of course you do that, except for some of the technologies we have to do it with that they didn't. But, you know, they had the deep pantry and they had the garden in the backyard and mom canned and, you know, and daddy went fishing and hunting and, you know, what have you, when he was off work. And they knew how to do things. But the money made it comfortable to buy a washing machine and a Chevrolet. Nothing wrong with that, other than I think you should buy a Ford. Um, but it, it probably doesn't work as well in the song. But it's, a, it, it's, it's the time in America where we started to rely on our incomes above our intellect. When we started to rely on our jobs above our work. And, and when that happened, it wasn't immediate. But it was the beginning of the path to where we are, where most people call a guy when anything breaks. It didn't used to be that way. The song says, ain't nobody looking back again. Ain't nobody looking back again. Well, I'm not looking back to all the things, because some of that stuff wasn't very good. But the mentality, somebody's looking back again. We are. The preppers of the modern world. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Again, the American farmer looks out upon a Sahara in the making. Rivers and lakes dry. Corn, hay, wheat, alfalfa turn to dust. Over 100,000 families are already destitute. So parched are the fields that in most cases, there is no hope whatever. Farmer Alex Skillet. We're Americans... And America's had a lot of hardships, but we're going to fight this through. Song, song of the South, sweet potato pie and I shut my mouth. Gone, gone with the wind, there ain't nobody looking back again. Cotton in the ditch We all picked the cotton But we never got rich Daddy was a veteran A southern democrat They ought to get a rich man To vote like that Singing Song, song of the south Sweet potato pie And I shut my mouth Gone, gone with the wind There ain't nobody Looking back again
Street fell, but we were so poor that we couldn't tell. Cotton was short and the weeds were tall, but Mr. Roosevelt are gonna save us all. The only thing we have to fear is... Well, Mama got sick and Daddy got down. The county got the farm and they moved to town. Papa got a job with a TVA. He bought a washing machine and then a Chevrolet. Sing it, song, song of the south, sweet potato pie in a shirt, my mouth. 